0: There's probably a few characteristics or qualities that stand out in your mind when we talk about the one true God. One of those characteristics is that he is worthy of worship. Maybe one of those qualities is that he is deserving to be praised. Maybe when you think of God, you think of Jesus, his son, God in flesh, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, whose name is above every other name when you hear the word God you think of something when you hear the word Jesus you think of something right? what if I talk to you about some other people some other beings just picture in your mind as best you can what you see when I mention things like this Politicians, not quite the same, okay. What about teenagers? What about millennials, baseball players, what about students, what about employees, what about employers? Chances are with each one of these words, positions, and titles, certain things come to your mind, right? Maybe even with a few of those folks, some words that you don't want to repeat and hear this morning, okay? Or maybe even a face comes to mind. Somebody that you know in one of those positions, with one of those titles, and maybe who has that background. I'm going to ask you a question, and I've, I want your response with this one, all right? I'll ask you to think about it. When you hear the word Christian... What comes to mind? All right, think about that just a moment. Go ahead and answer. If you got got something that comes to mind, Christ-like, saved, do it. Love, good. All right. Now here's my next question for you. Kind of along, along these same lines. Do you think that when people hear the word Christian, they always think of something good or positive? All right, Caroline's honest. That's a good thing. They don't. In fact, when, when some people hear the word Christian, I think sometimes they go, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's talk about politicians instead of Christians, right? There's no one to go there. When you hear the word Christian, you may think Christ follower, you may think Christ like. you may think love. That's, those are things you should think. Because really a, a Christian is supposed to be a representation of Christ, right? This word Christian was given to the disciples of Jesus in Acts chapter 11 verse 26. They had been known as followers of the way or as disciples of Jesus until that point. But the outside world began to make fun of them. Well, you Christians, you, you little Christs, right? But before they were known as Christians, these people were known as disciples. In fact, when you look in the New Testament, the word Christian is only used three times. The whole New Testament. But when you look at the word disciple, the word that means follower, it's used 281 times. in the New Testament. I think that that word disciple is a far more accurate and compelling description of what it means to actually follow Jesus. When people hear the word Christian, they ought to think follower of Christ. They ought to think follower of Jesus. But many times they don't. If we want to change the perception from the outside world, Hey, will you turn this pulpit microphone on instead of this headset thing? I think I'm going crazy over here. Can you guys hear me better? A little bit better? No, not at all? Here you go. Thank you. All right, let's try that. You hear me better now? Good deal. Now you can hear Christian, right? You can hear that word. All right, here we go. So when, uh, when people hear that word Christian, they ought to think, they ought to know That's a follower of Christ. I know who that is. I know what they're about. I know what that word means. It means they want to live like the Jesus they claim to serve. And if we want to change the perception from the outside world of what a Christian is, what a Christian should be, then we who call ourselves Christians have to understand what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to be a disciple. And so in the New Testament, we see a few people specifically called by Jesus himself to follow him. We call them sometimes the disciples or apostles. There's 12 of them. But this morning we're going to look at the first four that Jesus calls out. You actually studied this in Sunday school a few weeks ago if you were there. But instead of looking in Mark, where Jesus called his disciples, we're going to look in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 4 verses 18 through 22. See what Jesus does with these first few men that he calls to follow him, that he asks to be his disciples. I think it will help us see who we should be as Christians. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. Now as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, Peter, And Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. He called to them, and immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. These were Jesus' first disciples. And just kind of by way of historical background, this might help you understand Jesus' call to these four men to leave their fishing nets and their boats and their family business and come after him. Jesus, throughout the New Testament, is often called a teacher or rabbi. Rabbis were officially appointed Jewish teachers of God's word. Oftentimes, the Jewish leaders in a synagogue would kind of do what we do with preachers. When somebody feels called of God to preach his word, they would be brought before the synagogue and said This person is knowledgeable of God's word. They have the ability to communicate and to teach God's word. We'd like to designate them as a teacher, a rabbi. As rabbis grew in their knowledge of God's word and gained experience in teaching, they would also attract other followers. That is, people would want to listen to them and they would want to teach God's word as well. So it was the job of some of these rabbis who knew God's word well and had a great ability to communicate to train followers or disciples. These disciples had the goal in mind of becoming rabbis one day themselves, teachers of God's word. So here's just a little bit of history with the idea of rabbis and disciples in Jewish culture. All Hebrew boys went to Torah school starting at age five. The Torah was where they would receive instruction, especially with the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They would be trained and skilled in Old Testament knowledge, interpretation, and application. They would know the stories of how God created the heavens and the earth, of how man fell into sin, of how there was a great flood upon the earth because of mankind's sin. They would hear the story of the Tower of Babel and how people were scattered throughout the inhabited earth. They would hear the stories of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. How the nation of Israel had come to be slaves in Egypt, but then how God raised up a man named Moses to lead them out of slavery from Egypt. Through the wilderness wanderings, where the children of Israel disobeyed God, but where the Lord chose to show them mercy and gave him certain laws by which they were to obey him. They would know all of these things. By age 10, all young boys knew the Torah. And when I say that they knew the first five books of the Bible, they actually knew them. Like not just, can you quote Genesis 1-1, you can do that if you've been to Awana, But can you tell me what Genesis 1 says, the whole chapter? They could do it. The best students went on to study the remainder of the Old Testament. The Jews classified it into three categories. You had the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And then you had the writings and the prophets. If you knew the Torah, if you could teach it, understand it, had a good comprehension, you went on to study the remainder of the Old Testament. If you weren't one of the cream of the crop students at age 10, guess what? You got to go back home. And if your daddy was a carpenter, you would become a carpenter. And if your daddy was a fisherman, you would become a fisherman. At about age 17, if you wanted to go on after, after school and make a career out of religious studies... To become one of these rabbis, your, your step was to find a rabbi that you admired, somebody you respected, and you were to apply to become one of his disciples. I don't know exactly what the paperwork like was there or the interview process, but you would say, hey, I, I want to learn more. I respect you and I agree with what you're teaching. Can I sit underneath your teaching and learn from you? When you found a rabbi that you liked, somebody you could respect, somebody you want to listen to, you would go and you would sit at his feet, like literally, you'd sit down, showing your submission to him, but also your request to learn. The rabbi would then examine you with questions. This is kind of like you're voluntarily deciding to take a test. And he would put you through a series of these tests to see if you were worthy to be his disciple. If you knew enough, if you understood well enough, if you could communicate clearly, the rabbis would then, out of this group of folks around them, choose the smartest and most talented boys to be their followers, to be their disciples. Because after all, the rabbi's reputation and his legacy of faith depended upon the people who were following him. Another reason the rabbis were so picky is that when they chose a disciple... They were choosing whom they believed could become just like them. Not just to know what they knew, but also to do what they did to continue to carry on their ministry. For several years, the younger disciples would follow their rabbis, imitating them in every way. The goal of a disciple was to be like the rabbi. So with this call to Jesus' disciples in mind, in light of this historical background, what do we see about Jesus choosing these four fellows Simon, Andrew, James, and John. We see Jesus doing things in his culture, but a little bit differently than the rest of the people around. The first thing we see is this. Jesus doesn't just choose the best, he chooses the willing. I mean, after all, he's walking along by the Sea of Galilee, and he saw two brothers. These brothers hadn't come to sit at his feet and learn from him. In fact, they were still fishing in the boat. In fact, these two fellas weren't the smartest of the smartest when they came out of Torah school. They were fishermen. They were casting nets into the sea. In fact, God's word labels them and identifies them not as disciples or as followers or as learners, but as fishermen. So in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus, this new rabbi, comes on the scene and he says, Hey, you too, I know you're fishermen, but I want you to follow me. The fact that they were fishermen shows that they weren't part of the A team. They were part of the B team. Anybody ever on the B team at school? Now, I wasn't basketball. I was small. I was slow. Baseball is a different story, but I remember being on the B team in basketball. The fun part was I got to play all the time. The bad part was we lost about every game we played. We weren't the best of the best. And here's the thing we knew it, our coach knew it, everybody that came to the games knew it, but we still played. Now, when you think about Jesus choosing these fellows out of fishing boats, let this idea sink in. When Jesus was choosing his squad to build his movement, he chose men who hadn't been through Torah school and made it to become future rabbis. So when these guys hear a rabbi saying, Hey, you want to follow me? What do you think they did? You're talking to us? Yeah, Jesus, we, we want to follow you. We want to be a part of what you're doing. This rabbi had chosen them, guys without much potential or personal power, to follow him and to become like him, to know God like he knew God, to know what he knew and do what he did, and to be filled with his power. John MacArthur, Bible scholar, said it this way God skipped over all the wise of the day. The great scholars were in Egypt, the great library was in Alexandria, the great philosophers were in Athens, the powerful were in Rome. He passed over Herodotus, the historian, and Socrates, the great thinker, and Julius Caesar. He chose men so ordinary it was comical. No rabbis. No teachers, no religious experts, just regular, plain old Joes. Jesus chose the B team because his work in the world wouldn't come from their abilities for him, but from what he would do through them. People with a lot of talent and ability would only get in the way because they'd never learned to lean on his power, they'd trust in themselves and their own abilities. Jesus taught that his power in the weakest vessel was infinitely greater than the greatest talent without him. God wants to use you and your family and at your workplace to bring honor and glory to him. So don't make the excuse that you're not able to do what God wants you to do. God has made you. And he's called you. And if he's made you and called you, he makes you. Able, He doesn't need your own ability, your own strength. He only requires your availability. God doesn't call the equipped who can do everything in their own power. He equips those that he calls to do things in his power. So the question for you and for me as we think about Christians, being Christians and being followers of Jesus, is has, have we made ourselves available to him? You know, I think a lot of times we come to realize that we're doing Jesus a great favor by choosing to follow him. Jesus, you need me, obviously. I mean, Jesus, how's First Baptist Church going to grow without me there? How's First Baptist Church going to pay for anything without me giving? Jesus, how's First Baptist Church ever going to see lost people saved without me being the communicator of the gospel message? But those people, Are the people that Jesus passed over. The people that he wanted. Are the people that want him. The people that make themselves available to him. Have you made yourself available to Jesus? Because here's the second thing we find out. Is that. Jesus' disciples didn't first choose him. Jesus first chose his disciples. He chose us. Not we him. Keep in mind. The historical background of a disciple coming to a rabbi. How did they request to be one of his official students? They would come and sit at his feet. Yet these disciples don't come and sit at Jesus' feet. He calls to them while they're in their boats, follow me. The normal way this all went down is that you were if, if you were among the best of your class, you applied to be a rabbi, and if he liked what he saw, then he would choose you back, Right? So it's almost kind of like the the college application thing, right? You find a school you want to go to, you turn in your application, and then you wait to hear an acceptance letter. If we like you enough, then we'll pick you. But this is not how it worked with Jesus and his disciples. They didn't apply, and then Jesus put them through an interview process. He selected them first. Now think about this great deal of confidence that would have given them, but also the great humility check that they would have had. They knew who they were they knew who they weren't if they were struggling they could say things like this my rabbi believed in me he, he chose me he, he chose me he picked me he wanted me to do what he's called me to do but then they could also turn around and realize when the lord did something powerful and wonderful through them wow god is so great he's able to even use somebody like me to do this To accomplish his mission. And I think reality for us a lot of times hits. And we have feelings of inadequacy or insecure. We think, God, there's no way that I could ever do this. Sometimes it's a good place to be. But only if it causes you to lean upon the power of Jesus Christ in your life. And when you believe that Jesus chose you and called you to do His work and to carry on His mission, then you have humble confidence unlike any other person in the world. You know that without Christ, you're nothing but that in in Christ, you are everything and have everything that you need. Jesus Himself told His disciples in John 15 verse 16, You did not choose Me, but I chose you. And I appointed you to go and produce fruit, so that your fruit should remain. So that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. So we see that Jesus didn't choose the mighty and the powerful. He chose the available, the willing. We also see that Jesus chose his disciples. His disciples didn't first choose him. But then we realize this about Jesus' calling to his disciples, to us as Christians. Our primary calling is to be with him. Our primary calling is to be with him. Listen to me. It's not to do stuff. It's not to say stuff. Our primary calling is to be with him. When Jesus came to these folks, did he say, hey, do this? No. What did he say? Two words. Follow me. In other words, he wanted them to be around him. He wanted to be with them. He wanted them to be with him. Over in Mark, chapter 3, verse 14, I was reading this verse in my quiet time this week, and it just stood out to me. This is where, in in the gospel of Mark, Jesus calls all of his twelve disciples. But I think we see this very clearly. Just listen to this verse. Mark, chapter 3, verse 14. And Jesus appointed twelve so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach. Jesus knew that the only way these people would be able to preach the gospel message is if they first received the gospel message from him. He didn't tell them when he called them to follow him where they were going to go or what assignment he had for them. His primary call is not to do something, it is to become like Him. And to become like Him, you have to know Him. And to know Him, you have to know His Word, and you have to listen to what He says. This is why at our church, we continually talk, preach, teach from God's Word. I mean, this is, this is why at the youth lock-in Friday night, they didn't only drive to Jonesboro in the middle of the Middle of the, I was going to say middle of the night, middle of the morning, and come back to go have fun at hijinks. This is why we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, because it's the gospel that saves. This is why we have Sunday school classes, so you can grow in the knowledge of God's word. This is why every Sunday morning when I preach to you, I don't pull up a Dr. Seuss book or some book from the shelves at Lifeway and read passages to you out of it and then talk to you from those passages. Because it's from God's word that we learn and we live and we grow. And Jesus knew that if his disciples were going to become like him, they had to listen to what he said. The disciples listened to the very words of Jesus that we read from each Sunday, Wednesday, even at Awana in the New Testament. And so when we're serious about being his disciple, we begin to take advantage of these opportunities to learn from God's word and to hear his voice. We get his word inside of us until it dominates all of our thinking and our behavior. Because what happens when we spend time with Jesus and we hear from him and we learn his word and we learn who he is and we know what he's like. Is that we think about it. We talk about it. We live by it. We begin to quote it and we also begin to teach others about him and about his word. But then we don't just find the Lord's end of the deal when it comes to his call to be a follower of his. We also find what this call actually required. Think about the scenario. You're in the fishing boat. Your net has just been cast into the water and Jesus says, follow me. You know like when you're trying to head out the door and you're telling your kid, put on your shoes? It's, it's not, first, let me finish painting. Let me finish drawing. Let me finish coloring. Let me finish building my tower. Let me finish playing with my toys and then put on my shoes. It's put on your shoes. We're going out the door. When Jesus comes to these men, he says, follow me. This is remarkable. In both Mark, who, you, who uses the word immediately all the time, and then Matthew, we see that these men immediately left their boats. They immediately left their nets. They immediately left their families. I mean, look here in, in Matthew chapter 4. Notice what they leave. Verse 20 says, Immediately they left their nets and they followed him. Verse 22, when he comes and calls James and John, it says that they left the boat and their father. Right? Why does the word specifically identify these things? Because they're usually the most significant things in our own lives, aren't they? I mean, when they had to leave their nets, he's telling them to leave behind what they knew and what they were experts with. Their tools, their way to obtain. Leave that behind. When he calls them and they leave their boats They're having to leave behind their possession. A fisherman's fishing boat is a prized possession. I I don't know if you guys realize that down here in Redneckville, but when somebody's got a boat, they got a boat. And this was the same kind of thing with fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. When they had a boat, they had a boat. They had to leave their possessions. And this boat, in many ways, also symbolizes their careers. But then this is even more difficult, I think, They didn't just leave their nets and their boats. But what does verse 22 say? They also left who? Their family, their father. Could you imagine? Dad, I know we spent all of our lives with you and you were hoping one day we were going to take this business over, but we just had Jesus tell us to follow him. Here's the net. And they left everything to follow Jesus. Because when we choose to be a disciple, we choose to make Jesus preeminent over everything. Now most of us, let's be honest about it, Okay, most of us are not going to have to lose father or mother in order to become a Christian or a follower of Jesus. Some of you might, but most of us don't. We don't have to go there. For some people... God may call you to change careers, perhaps even in the middle of life when your income level is at its peak. Maybe God will tell you, hey, you need to put this down and follow me. You need to go be a missionary in Africa or you need to plant a church through the North American Mission Board. Sometimes it's not that dramatic. But no matter the case, whether it's in the middle of life when you have to consciously leave everything behind including income and significant relationships, there are moments in each of our lives when we have to decide which holds the greater sway over our life. Is it Jesus or my stuff? Is it Jesus or my career? Is it Jesus or these friends? Is it Jesus or my family? Is it Jesus or this sport? Is it Jesus or my future? Is it Jesus or money? To follow him, we have to leave all. And that's what these guys did. And here's what's so interesting. When they decided to drop their nets and stop fishing for fish, Jesus showed them a greater reward than they had ever before experienced. Because when we decide to follow Jesus... He commands us to also spiritually reproduce. That is, He didn't just say, follow me. Our primary calling is to be with Him. But the more we're with Him, the more we do what He does, and the more we say what He says, and we preach what He preaches. We love how He loves, and we live like He lives. After Jesus said, follow me, what did He say to them? Verse 19, follow me and... All right, good. I was going to say, not all of you volunteer for the youth lock-in, so you can't all fall asleep, right? He said, I will make you fishers of men. I will make you fish for people. Following Jesus means you subject everything in your life to his lordship. You forsake all that he has forbidden and pursue all that he has prescribed. Just like he was a fisher of men, and his followers should also become fishers of men. This is an essential part of being a disciple. It's not something that only a few of us do. It's something that each of us does. There's no such thing as a non-reproducing Christian. The Sunday school material, if you've got a daily discipleship guide, said this a couple weeks ago on this lesson of following Jesus. The disciples were not simply students learning at the feet of Jesus, like other disciples with other rabbis. They were followers chosen to carry his message of salvation to all the world. So how do you prove that you are a disciple of Jesus Christ? We stop and think about this with me for a moment. You want to? There's some things that Christians do. In fact, I dare say this was done with you when you became a Christian at whatever point it was in your life. Way back in the past or even recently. When you became a Christian... Your pastor or your youth minister probably talked to you about something called baptism, right? You guys had that conversation? Baptism is the time when a Christian chooses to come before the church and show everybody that he has died to his sins, that he's been forgiven of his sins, and he has new life in Jesus. It's a picture that Jesus Christ died on the cross, he was buried, and he rose again. Christians show that they want to follow Christ by being baptized, Right? There's some other things that you were probably taught. If you haven't been, you need to hear them now. You were probably taught that you need to pray to the Lord. You need to have ongoing communication with Him, right? Everybody tracking with me here? You're Christians, do you pray? Yeah, yeah, all right, good. And there was probably something else that you learned too. You probably learned that you needed to spend time reading God's Word, studying His Word, right? But Jesus doesn't stop with all of these things. In fact, he really doesn't even start there. What did he say? Follow me and then you can get baptized and you can pray and you can spend time reading the Old Testament. What did he say? Follow me and what? I will make you fishers of men. I'm going to keep asking you this every week until you get it. I'm going to keep talking to you every week until you get it. Because listen, here's, here's reality for us Christians in this time in America, we always talk about how Christians are apathetic, Christians are lazy. We we got church members that never come to church, we got people who aren't growing in their faith. Let me ask you this question If your one job as a Christian is to be with Jesus and then to get other people to be with Jesus, and you're not pointing other people to Jesus, do you think you're going to grow in your faith? I don't think you will we realized what it would be like if each one of us found someone else to talk about following Jesus what difference would that make in their life but also in our own lives Jesus said this in John chapter 15 verse 8 my father is glorified by this that you produce much fruit and therefore prove to be my disciples Jesus told his disciples how to bear fruit in his famous great commission I think I've told you this one so many times you could say it in your sleep go therefore And make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. And remember, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. In Greek, the New Testament that was written in this language, the words go, baptize, and teach are all participles that derive their force from the one controlling imperative verb, And that verb is make disciples, which means that everything we do grows out of the call to make disciples. If we're going to be a follower of Jesus, we have to do what Jesus did, right? What did he call people to do? Two words, you remember? Follow me. If we want to be like Jesus, what do we have to do? Hey, follow him. Follow him. Follow him. In his book, The Master Plan of Evangelism, Robert Coleman said this, When will the church learn this lesson? Preaching to the masses, although necessary, will never suffice in the work of preparing leaders for evangelism. Nor can occasional prayer meetings and training classes for Christian workers do this job. Individual women and men are God's method. God's plan for discipleship is not something, but someone. Now stop and think about this. You, as a Christian, are God's plan for the world to hear the message of salvation. Do you know that? I mean, Jesus spent the majority of his time not just teaching the masses or healing the sick, but investing in his 12 disciples. And I think Jesus invested his time in 12 Jewish disciples because he knew it was the only way to reach all Americans and everybody else in the world. Do you get that? Do you understand what that means for you and for me? It means that each one of us should choose to follow Jesus and there ought to be someone or someone's that we have in our lives that we're saying, hey, come on with me. Let's follow Jesus together. Hey, come with me. Let me point you to the one who can save you from your sins. Let me show you the one who can provide you wisdom in the situation that you're dealing with. Let me point you to the one who can give you knowledge of the truth. Let me point you to the one who can bring you comfort and hope. You are God's method to preach the gospel to the world. I want to see you become his method. I want to see you become the people that he has called you to be. So here's what I've got in mind. You'll see this, you probably saw it this morning. I'm going to ask you this question repeatedly over the next several weeks. Who is your one? Who is your one person? If you you got to start somewhere, right? If you're called to fish for people then you got to find one person that you are praying for you got to find one person you got to invite them to church you got to find one person and build a relationship with them and share the gospel of jesus christ with them now listen to me some of you are still babies in christ because you got saved 40 years ago and you've never led another person to jesus It may be harsh, but that's reality. You're never going to grow past that point if you don't find somebody and share with them the power that's transformed your life. It's the saving power of Christ. So that question, let it sink into your hearts. Let it penetrate your mind. Who is your one? I'm going to ask you this every week. You can ask me too. I've got a one person. The Lord's put him on my heart. He's put him on my mind. I've been praying for him every day. I've already invited him to church and I imagine that the Lord in his sovereign providence will give me the opportunity to share the gospel with him before too long. Who is the one person in your life? Who's the one person God's put on your heart that you can be praying for, that you can be inviting the church and sharing the good news of Jesus with? Said say, Jake, man, I don't know about that. I don't really think that that's What we ought to be doing, hey listen, if Jesus did it this way and he changed the world, why could he not use you to bring the message of salvation to somebody who desperately needs to hear it? So here's your invitation this morning. If you're a Christian, if you're a disciple of Jesus and you really want to keep following Jesus and you want to grow in your faith, I want you to pray that God would put one person on your heart, on your mind, and in your life. Right here this morning. And for the next 30 days, the next 30 days, I want you to pray for that person every single day. If you need a prayer guide, I've got some. They'll be sitting right here on the communion table. Maybe during that song of invitation, you just need to walk up and grab a prayer guide and say, Lord, I want to follow you and I want to point other people to follow you. Give me one person that I can pray for every day. And invite the church and share the gospel message with. Or maybe you're here this morning. And when we talk about being a Christian or a follower of Jesus or a disciple. You don't have good thoughts that come to your mind. Maybe you're the one here this morning. That Jesus is calling. That he's he's speaking to your heart. And he's telling you, follow me. Leave everything behind. Come and find me, and I'll give you rest. Come and follow me, and I'll give you new life. Come and find me, and follow me, and I will make you a fisher of men. Would you stand with your heads bowed and your eyes closed? In just a moment, a song will be played, and as the song is played and sung, I encourage you to identify one person in your life You can pray for, you can invite the church, and you can share the gospel with. Maybe you're here this morning and you want to follow Jesus yourself. I'll be standing down here in the front. If you need to come and speak with me, if you need to come and pray, I'll be happy to pray with you. This altar will be open if you want to come and kneel in prayer before the Lord. As He's calling to you this morning, would you come?